Thank you, Claire. Do keep your, your Bibles open at that, uh, that passage that we'll be looking at uh, this, this morning. Well, we're looking at uh, finishing strong, finishing the unfinished business of God, and we're looking at the life of, of Caleb. The Mel Gibson film Braveheart tells the story of William Wallace, one of Scotland's great national heroes and the leader of the Scottish resistance during the long struggle to free Scotland from English rule at the end of the 13th century. I am a Scot, by the way. There is a moving scene in the film where William Wallace, facing the English armies, shouts out to his own people, I am William Wallace, will you fight? And the Scots reply, 2,000 against 10,000? No, we will run and we will live. Wallace replies, aye, fight and you may die. Run and you will live, at least for a while. But lying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days for this day, for that one chance, that one chance to kill our enemies? For they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Oh, it's rather moving, I have to say. And we have allowed bygones to be bygones. Wallace was a hero whose life and words inspired his countrymen to fight an army five times stronger than them. But he was committed to his cause to the very end of his life. But the same could be said of this man here, Caleb, in the book of Joshua. Now, who was Caleb? Well, although Caleb belonged to the tribe of Judah, his father, Jephunneh, was a Kenizzite, a nomadic Bedouin tribe that ranged throughout the, the Sinai from the time of Abraham. Therefore, at some point, Caleb's ancestors themselves embraced the God of Israel, and were grafted into that tribe of Judah. Now, you might recall that when God had led Moses and the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, He led them along to the edge of the promised land of Canaan, which lay across the Jordan River. Moses then sent out 12 men to spy out the land and bring back a report to see if it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Upon their return, the spies brought back with them the rich produce of the land. Ah, but 10 of the spies claimed that the inhabitants of Cana were far more powerful, too powerful and too large to overthrow, and so they should not advance against them. Only Caleb and Joshua believed that with God's help, they could conquer the land for God, the land that God promised to give them. Sadly, that negative report from the ten spies influenced the majority of the Israelites, and they did not advance into Cana. And so God, in His anger, made the whole community wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that unbelieving generation had died out. Only Joshua and Caleb from that generation were ever allowed to enter into that promised land because they had faith to believe 
the Lord. Caleb is described in Scripture as being someone who lived wholeheartedly for God. Caleb was wholehearted, not half-hearted. And three times in this chapter alone, we read that Caleb wholeheartedly followed the Lord. This was his trademark. God himself recognized that distinctive heart in Caleb when he described him elsewhere uh, in the book of Numbers as being a man with a different spirit. It says this, God says, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. You know, if you've ever bought a, a, a stick of, of rock from Blackpool or Skegness, you'll see words that run right the way through it. Well, if you could examine any segment of Caleb's life, these words would be found running through it. Wholehearted for God. Wholehearted for God. Wholehearted for God. It'd be running right the way through it, even from his youth to his old age. Because by the time that we meet him in this passage we have read, he is now 85 years of age and is still as on fire for God as he was when he was younger. And it is so encouraging, isn't it, to see people who are in their later years still going strong in faith with the Lord. Now, this is more than could ever be said about the half-heartedness of some of the Israelites. You see, at the beginning of this chapter, we read that Joshua had successfully completed the first half of his mission. He had conquered much of Cana, and Israel was now in control of the land. Joshua was now dividing up the land amongst those 12 tribes of Israel, as we can see on this map here. However, if you look behind me, the tribes of Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh didn't want to cross the Jordan River and live in the promised land. They were happy to remain on the, the, uh, e the west side. No, the east, east side of the river. I was looking at my notes and I got my geography wrong. On the east side of the river. Now, this was not the promised land God wanted to give them. But they chose that land because it was convenient and good for raising their cattle. They didn't want to settle within God's appointed land with the rest of Israel. They were instead content just to live along the borders. They weren't living in Egypt. They weren't living in the wilderness anymore, but neither were they fully in the promised land either. They were just borderline believers. And we later discover 
that their decision would be disastrous for them and for their children that followed them because they became more vulnerable to the influences of the surrounding nations who would infiltrate them from time to time and lead them astray from being wholehearted towards God. And eventually, this brought about their downfall. Friends, to me, this is a symbol of commitment. And churches, too, can have people, yes, they've been redeemed by God, but they are content to live on the borders of their faith, never fully committed, never all in for all that God wants for their life. They're content living in the lobby, but not the living room. Christians who are the hokey-cokey type, one foot in, one foot out, shake it all about. Their religion is half-hearted, half-hearted in attendance at church, half-hearted as to whether they ever get involved in serving, half-hearted in their financial giving to the work of God. Everything is just borderline. They can miss weeks and months in their attendance and feel no different because ultimately they're not committed to what God wants for them. And they are influenced by the enticement of this world and its pull upon them. Friends, people who are half-hearted for God also tend to be faint-hearted too. They don't want to take risks, risks or, or move from their comfort zone because that might mean change or inconvenience. But God is looking for wholehearted followers with a different kind of spirit like Caleb. He believed God for the impossible. You know, when he was 40, Caleb was sent along with the other spies, and when they spied out the land of Canaan, he saw exactly what all those other spies saw. Yes, he saw the dangers. He saw the pitfalls, the obstacles, the challenges, the fortified cities, and the, the massive Analekite people. But unlike the 10 spies who came with this gloomy, defeatist report, Caleb could see the reality of the problems he faced. But he placed alongside them the awesomeness of his God. And he believed that they could take this land for God. The other 10 spies, they only saw the obstacles in, in their life. They said it can't be done. The problems are too great. The challenge is too difficult. You know, it reminds me of a, a true story of a church which had a building project. In fact, when we were attempting to try and raise the funds to build this facility, which we've been in for 12 years, friends, it took an enormous level of sacrifice on the part of many in our congregation. And we were nowhere near the size we are now. It was enormous sacrifices that people made. One of the things that, that we did, I believe it was Peter and Valerie that went down and uh, and saw a minister that was also involved in a, a building project. And they were hoping to get some inspiration. And this minister said that there was one member of their congregation who was so negative to the pastor each week about their building project that he kept on coming up to him and saying, we'll never do it, you know. 
We'll never raise that amount of money. We'll never be able to do it. Week by week, this pastor said, this man kept on saying this. But do you know what? The building work did get done and was paid for. And do you know what that miserable moaning man said upon entering the building as he took his seat? He punched the air and said, we did it. I knew we would. What a brass neck. Well, thankfully, the pastor and the rest of the congregation took, took no heed of that man's negative spirit. Well, sadly, the people did not take Joshua and Caleb's advice. And as a result, God sentenced the whole nation to remain in the wilderness for almost 40 years until only Joshua and Caleb's generation was left. Think of it. The Israelites could have captured the land of Canaan 40 years earlier if those 10 pessimists only had faith to believe that the Lord God was bigger than their obstacles that they were facing. But they didn't. And so everyone suffered as a result. Oh, friends, you will always find people that said, we can't do that. Oh, it's just too big, too difficult, too challenging, too expensive. It's too this and that. They're never courageous enough to see things with spiritual eyesight of faith. And so they turn back. You know, if the Israelites were only relying upon human resources, then yes, they should turn back. But if they are relying upon an all-powerful God, the outcome looks quite different. Yes, there were challenges in entering Cana. It wasn't going to be a pushover. But God was on their side. And Caleb believed God. You see, there will always be something that's going to be an obstacle to God's work. Because God's work is always opposed. There's always some reason why we should stay put or turn back rather than move forward. But do you have faith to believe that God can help you to overcome the obstacles that are in your way? The preacher Charles Price once said this, never ask as your first question about anything, is it possible? Ask instead, is it right? For if you ask, is it possible, then you'll only live in the realm of the possible, which is the way that every single man and woman in the world lives. But if you ask, is it right that we should do this, then do everything in your power to make it happen. Oh, friends, God is looking for people with a spirit of victory rather than a spirit of defeat. People with a spirit to advance rather than to retreat. To believe God rather than to doubt Him. So I wonder what are the Analekites that we face? Is it that some of your friends and relatives just seem too hard to reach, too clever to convert, too far from God to be conquered by Him? Take it to God in prayer. 
include your God and see the massiveness of Him in this situation? Is there an issue at your, in your work life which you've allowed to become so big that it feels as if it outsizes God? Friends, take your lesson from Caleb. He measured the giants, and he knew they were not bigger than his God. Friends, we too need to regain a perspective on the almightiness of the Almighty. Thirdly, Caleb was concerned for God's unfinished business. Now, if you are like me, I'll bet you that around your house, there are daily reminders of jobs that we promised ourselves, oh, I'll get around to doing that one day. But we didn't. We didn't get around to finishing. We didn't finish off the painting of that room, the tidying of the garage, the fixing of that annoying squeaky floorboard, mending that broken handle. The list is endless. We often say to ourselves, oh, I'm just going to get around to doing it sometime. Friends, if I came to your house, trust me, or you came to mine, we would all start to spot the unfinished business in our house. Well, Caleb was not happy with unfinished business for God. He wanted to get the job done. And so he approaches Joshua and he says this, I am 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was back then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. What an incredible statement. He was 85 years of age. But Caleb, Caleb was not going to allow his age to be a barrier to completing God's work. I love that phrase that uh, I, I've probably got it wrong from, um, uh, from listening to Jane. It's not just going gray, it's the going grays. Was that right? Was it the going grays? If not, I'll copyright this one. At an age when most people would have been sunning themselves on the beaches of Bournemouth or Skegness, maybe let's stick to Bournemouth, and enjoying their retirement, Caleb still wants to do great things for God. Caleb says, give me this mountain for the Lord. He didn't say, give me this rocking chair, or give me a nursing home, or give me my slippers and a pipe. Caleb announces at the age of 85 years of age, give me that mountain for the Lord. Unfinished business for the Lord. You see, Caleb had not allowed his devotion, his zeal, or his ambition for God to fade over time. Oh, and friends, what an example his life then set for the, the next generation. Because if you look in the book of Judges, we read of Nathaniel, who was Caleb's young nephew. He ended up becoming one of the great warriors who delivered Israel out the hands of their enemies, which you can read in Judges chapter 3. Oh, friends, there have been older Christians in our church who have been an inspiration to the next generation. 
I think of Sylvia Armitage, Elizabeth Simpson, John and Kathy Parfit, Graham and Anne Humphreys over there, who have modeled pastoral care and compassion to dozens and dozens of people through their, throughout their lives, caring for the needs, listening to their struggles, carrying their burdens, just to bring encouragement at someone's time of need. Internationally, I think of Bill and Rosemary Retty, John and Marion Bourne. I think of Stephen and Heather Miller, who use their gifts either to go and help countries that are struggling, where faith is required. And, and I think of the, the Bournes helping those who are internationals who have come to us to encourage them. And I look at Jane here, who we've just been praying for, who in her retirement spent already two years on the mission field in Brazil to help a church. And now a few years on from that, going back to Brazil again to bring encouragement to that church. And even Joff and Claire who have led our service. They're about to finish salaried employment and who are looking to see how they can invest their lives, the next decade of their lives in Christian service whilst they still have the health and energy to do so now. Geoff and Claire said to me, we should all be considering how the Lord might use us in our retirement. Actually, how he should use us at any stage of our life, but in particular in those years. You know, there are many ministries in this church, and it needs resourcing human resources, and there's so much more that we could yet do as a church if we had the personnel to help. Churches to revitalize, fresh areas to reach, countries to visit and, and reach for the good news of Christ. You know, for some people, the only mountain they want to climb is, is called their career. It's the only thing they will invest any of their energies into. They leave nothing for the Lord's work in life. And they leave nothing even in their retirement. But God is looking for a people who have a heart like Caleb, who at the age of 85 will still say, Lord, give me that mountain for you. So what is your mountain? The people living around this city and this world who don't know, yet know Jesus and the forgiveness that he came and died to bring, that is certainly a mountain, friends. Do we lack zeal to reach lost, to invite them in or to go out for them, to invest in those newcomers who come to us and invite them to our homes, to support new ministries to reach the lost? or to disciple the next generation, these young men and women who are growing up and who are in need of guidance in life. For some of us, the mountains might be internal areas of our own lives that have yet to be conquered, overcoming our fears about maybe even sharing our faith. I think of uh, a gentleman called Mr. George. Mr. George was at the church that I used to work for in London, and Mr. George was in his late 60s, and he sat at the front of the church, and 
the minister uh, down in London was R.T. Kendall, and he had just started going out onto the streets just talking to people, not street preaching, just chatting to people about the Lord. And he looked to the congregation. He said, who will come out on that streets with me? Have you ever told someone the good news about Jesus? Have you ever had the privilege of leading someone to Christ? If not, will you go with me? And Mr. George sat there and he thought, I am in my late 60s and I have never told someone the good news about Jesus properly. And I've certainly never led somebody to Christ. Do you know what? From that moment on, that's what he did. And Mr. George probably lent 300 to Christ before he died. He used his life. Friends, perhaps you have settled down on the borderlines of ease rather than the front line of the battle. Oh, take up arms again and say to God, with your help, O Lord, and for the sake of the gospel, I want to win that mountain for you, Lord. You know, the preacher John Piper tells the following story. He says this, I will show you how to waste your retirement years. Consider a story I read from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest in America, which tells about an American couple who took early retirement from their jobs when the husband was 59 and his wife was 51. They moved to Florida, where they cruised all day on their 30-foot boat, playing softball and collecting seashells. Tragically, this is with their highest goal, their highest aim, their mountain, their dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious life, your God-given life, and let the last great work and statement of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this. I played softball and I collected seashells. By the way, there is nothing wrong with collecting seashells. I collect fossils. But picture them before Christ at that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, aren't they beautiful, my seashells? Friends, that would be a tragedy. And people today are spending billions to persuade you to embrace a tragic dream. The tragedy of spending one's life without thought to the kingdom of God at all. Well, finally, Caleb did receive his inheritance. We are told that Caleb inherited a place called Hebron. And do you know what Hebron means? It means the place of fellowship. For when we counter, conquer mountains for God, we do discover intimate fellowship with Him. Our final inheritance, you see, lies in heaven, where Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You know, many years ago, Ernest Shackleton placed an advert in the Times which read as follows. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, 
long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful, but honor and recognition in event of success. Now, you would have thought that no one would have applied to such an advert, yet Shackleton received over 5,000 replies. Why? Because they were living in a day and age where the spirit of adventure and courage was still alive. There were still parts of the world to discover. There were still mountains to climb and to conquer. Oh, friends, as Christians, we too are surrounded by mountains to conquer, unfinished business for God, souls to reach, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including the people in our neighborhoods and in our families. Friends, we are never too old or too young to make new conquests of faith in the power of the Lord. And we are never too young to begin making our li lives count for the kingdom of heaven, using the gifts and the strength he's, He has given us. And Caleb did both. He lived wholeheartedly for the, the Lord in his youth and in his age. Ah, but there was one greater than Caleb who lived his entire life from beginning to end wholeheartedly for God, for every second, who through his death and resurrection conquered every scrap of territory that the devil had laid claim upon your lives, the Lord Jesus. He has won all. And he has purchased our pardon, freed us from guilt, and offers us a place in his inheritance on that new earth where we shall have our Horeb of unbroken fellowship with him in an everlasting kingdom. A Savior who says to us this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jumping back to my first illustration of Braveheart, tell me this, lying on our beds, in our old age, too infirm to move. What would you wish to look back on with pride and say, Lord, I'm glad I invested my life from that mountain? For your kingdom. Oh, friends, may that be true of you and me. Let's pray.
O Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on us? The Spirit that moved Caleb and Joshua to have a line of sight of faith that others did not have, to see what was possible with our God, to see places that needed to be won for their Savior. Lord, may we be found to be people who, lying on our deathbed, can look back and see that we contributed something into the kingdom of God. May that be true of us, O Lord. May we contribute something. Use us in our weakness. Use us in our frailty. But use us wholeheartedly for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.